Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. Hello, hello, Greg here with a special mid-season episode of Witch Investigates. This first season is focusing on claims of sustainability, looking at whether products or trends that claim to be cleaner and greener really have an eco-effect, or whether their marketing is simply greenwashing. So far, my investigations have asked whether plastic packaging is always a bad idea, If your phone comes with an expiry date, how green actually is an electric car? And last week, how healthy a plant-based diet can be for you and the planet? We've got four more investigations on the way for you this season, but I thought we'd take a little mid-season breather to play you some more of the conversations that I've been having, because each week, myself and producer Rob chat to loads of experts. We dive into the reports and the science with them to see what the evidence says. But sadly, when we edit the final episode, you only get to hear a short part of each of those conversations. So... I thought we could do a mid-season bonus app where you get to hear extended chats with three of the experts from the first half of season one. On the way, which car expert Adrian Porter and I discuss some of your biggest questions about electric vehicles, EVs, and he lets slip quite a revelation. Uh, Plus, you'll hear more from producer Rob's chat with journalist and author of Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, Jenny Kleeman, who's going to be sharing stories of her unique research trips looking at the alternative meat industry. But first, a friend of mine, material scientist, engineer and broadcaster, Mark Mirdovnik. I chatted to Mark for episode two, which explored the idea of mobile phone obsolescence, the suggestion by some that your phone could come with a built-in short shelf life. In that episode, you'll hear Mark telling me how to make a mobile phone, you need to mine almost half the elements of the periodic table from mines all over the world, and that that comes with a significant ecological, societal and potentially ethical footprint too. Here's where that chat continued, taking us to the repairability of our phones and other tech. And Mark tells me the shocking truth of what actually happens to your phone if you do recycle it. And they're actually handmade, actually. You know, smartphones are handmade because it's so intricate. And then it gets shipped out to you, the customer. And so, you know, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of energy use. There's a lot of people involved. There's a lot of the environment being, well, definitely affected in, in, in huge ways, actually. And all of that footprint for something that the vast majority of people use for a year to a few years. And then they chuck it away for a new one. How does that make you feel? Yeah, this is this is the tragedy that 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 you get this incredible piece of technology that's 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 an amazing achievement for humanity, it has has an enormous footprint as you say, and then and then people essentially upgrade within twenty four months that so they'll they'll discard it 
uh, in the West anyway, within 24 months. That's the average time. And that, that just seems an enormous waste. And it is an enormous waste because all of the CO2 emissions that, that the whole supply chain and the mining operations put into the air, they're still there. You, you put the phone somewhere. You may even try and get it re recycled. But the, those CO2 emissions, all the water that's been contaminated, all the people that's been affected, that's not going away. Why do you think our lifetime with each of these new devices is so short? What's driving that? I think there's no doubt that it's a business model developed by smartphone companies to make money. Uh, it's extremely lucrative. And they would say that this is all about bringing you innovation. And I think there is also that part of the story to it. It is you know, they're bringing new functionality. You've got all sorts of other upgrades, software upgrades that make uh, apps that people rely on, like banking apps, no longer function. You realise there's a pressure towards always upgrading to the latest model. And this is done within an environment where they're not actually saying to you, well, we'll take the old phones back and recycle those. So, you know, it, it, to me, it's no doubt about it. that this is, this is essentially a business model which is working, clearly, and is about selling you more stuff. There's a debate around planned obsolescence and whether that is something that's coming from the manufacturers, from the brands, or whether that's something that's driven by us consumers and our desire for the new model as soon as it comes out. Where do you fall on that? What do you think it is? Yeah, I agree. I mean, people do like new things. And if you go on YouTube and and just search unboxing smartphone, right, you will find people who they'll buy the latest phone and they'll they'll do a video of themselves unboxing it and, and clearly a lot of people are viewing these millions of views so pe people are loving just the newness getting something out of the box that smell of a new technology and and, and in a way i mean i'm no different I, I like a new thing as much as someone else but but there's an enormous amount of push being forced into it and, and part of the forcing you into it is the is the fact that these devices are not designed to be repaired and and repair isn't being encouraged for instance things like publishing repair manuals is, is not done by the manufacturers. I mean, I really remember the, the moment when, when smartphones were starting to be sold without the ability of the user to replace the battery. I mean, that, if, if, there's, if that's not a technology push of obsolescence, what is? You know, you know you're gonna to have to replace the battery. You're buying this incredible state-of-the-art piece of kit, which should you last you at least 10 years, but you know the battery will, will, will start fading within 12 to 24 months. And the manufacturer's telling you, <laughs> you can't change the battery. I mean, this is crazy. When did that start to happen? When did you notice that switch from here is a device and we as consumers, as users, have the power to get into it, to open it up, to buy replacement parts? When did that shift start to happen to not get in, not have access to the parts? Yeah, this is around, you know... Uh... 2010 there's a big push to make them very lightweight and slim and I understand that the companies are all fighting for market share I, I you know I'm not naive you know that they're all pushing each other for innovation and and citizens want thinner smarter phones lighter weight phones and and I think they made a decision well if you don't have to if you don't have to design it to be opened up at the back so you can replace the battery because the battery takes up quite a large chunk of a, of a smartphone I mean, it's actually one of the innovations that's made smartphones possible is, is, is high-density lithium batteries. But as soon as you make that decision, well, we're not going to get, let the user get in there. You, you, from a design perspective, you can, you can integrate a lot more of the functionality. And do we users just simply accept this? You know, do we, do we, are we aware 
of that footprint of everything that's gone into this device? And do you think if we were more aware of that, we would petition about the fact that we can't repair our devices? I think most people um, are living in a world where they have that this technology is so is so part of their lives. It's so normal. It's so like a loaf of bread for them, <laughs> which is also an amazing stuff. <laughs> but I mean, we, we live privileged lives, don't we? And I think we're, we're materially very wealthy, certainly in developed countries. And I think that with that has come complacency and a loss of uh, amazement, a loss of appreciation of how lucky we are to live in the time that we live. There is a sort of loss of, there's a loss of a, of a spirit of engineering pride that I think countries used to have that it, it, it is being forced on us in a way, or, or at least we've accepted it as a norm. We'll look back on this time and just, you know, you, you can see it with the plastic waste in the oceans. We'll look back on this time and think, what a lot of spoiled people we were. We really didn't appreciate how lucky we had it. As a material scientist and engineer, as someone who respects the materials, respects the engineering that goes into making something like a smartphone, how does it make you feel that, that we as users look at our devices in that way? I mean, I feel sad. I feel, I mean, part of the reason I'm out here doing radio and TV programs as well as working in, in my lab is is that I feel like the, the reason we've slept walked into this is that maybe people like me haven't spent enough time telling the story of how these things work and I think that engineers just need to get out of their labs more and and tell and and and, and, and engage with the public more to to get them to appreciate that stuff more because then I think uh, informed citizens will push back on these business practices and will ask for regular i think it will require regulation of the market uh, and also people i mean that the the upside is people are understanding that environmental damage caused by these processes is is something they do not want anymore and so i think the environmental movement is going to create this this uh, desire for change i know another thing that you're keen on as well is um, encouraging people to get hands-on with the technology with their devices around the home um, and to get repairing as well. I know there's a big push for that. How easy is it actually for uh, for me, for someone who doesn't really have much engineering um, experience or dexterity to repair things around the house when they do break? When you repair something yourself, um, you know, it, it's a set of skills and it, and it requires a set of tools that won't happen overnight if you've not done it before. But I, I do, I do think you can start doing things that are quite simple at first, and and I, the amount of satisfaction you get from something being broken to that you, not only taking it apart to work out what's wrong, but then repairing it and then putting it back together, and you've you've made that thing last longer, but you understand it more. Most people just don't understand the technology that they totally rely on, and that I think is sort of creates a hollowness, you know, inside. Um, and so I think repair is the way back to that and I know that it seems like a massive obstacle but um, and, and the manufacturers are not helping by making things un unrepairable but you know the other day our hairdryer broke and you know two kids you know it's just madness bath time trying to blah, blah, and now the hairdryer's broken and your immediate reaction is I will buy a new one right you should just think there's just no way I can possibly repair it but then you think no let me just see if it's the fuse so you take the few screws off the back of the plug and then you find, oh, no, the plug, one of the little wires come off. Oh, OK, I put that back on. That's a screwdriver. That, I, I could see that by eye that that was the problem. Put it back on again. Put the plug back in. Put it in the wall. It's working. And like, 
you've saved the day for the family. Well, they, they don't really appreciate the small kids, but, but uh, you feel good, right? And I think, it, you know, it's that emotional engagement with your engineering in your house that I think is something that people need more in their lives. And I think there are these repair cafes in local communities that people can get involved with. And that, that also creates more interaction with the communities and people. I think that's a really good thing. And then and then let's not forget there's YouTube. And this has been a massive step forward for repair because, you know, I, I repaired my washing machine as well. And I only, I only could do it not because there was a repair manual, not because the manufacturer wanted me to, but because I went onto YouTube and I said, washing machine, code error this, my, my type of washing machine, boom. And I keep pausing the video. I get the part. I change the thing. I put it back together again. I do that several times because I've got some screws left over, which I shouldn't have. <laughs> I put them back in again. You know, these are the things that happen. And washing machine, you know, costs me to repair $12.99 instead of getting someone out, them, and now you're down 150 quid. So, I mean, I feel like there is hope. You know, you, it opens up this world where you don't feel a hostage to these big business, these trillion dollar companies, right? Which, are, which essentially are sort of just, they're using you as a cash cow, right? because of your ignorance, I think. And I feel like we should push back. And it gives you, you know, you said it so well, it gives you that respect. It gives you that almost more sense of ownership and connection to these devices as well. Um, and also makes you start to appreciate what's gone into them. And I feel like you have an emotional connection with the things like, I care more about that washing machine now because I've seen its innards. And I've, you know, we've got a deeper relationship. That sounds ridiculous, but I, I you know, I don't think it is. It's just like having a pet. Uh, washing machine it makes these pet noises <laughs> as it as it kind of rotates also by the way i moved away from from kettles that have got a heating element in them because they kept breaking on me and every 12 months i found myself replacing the kettle and when i tried to order a new heating element it was impossible to do so again they are irreparable and i thought this is crazy because in that heating element i happen to know there's chromium and nickel which are very valuable elements i was unable to recycle them or do anything good with them so i thought i am not going to buy into the system where they're basically making me and these are not cheap kettles i'm buying these are decent you know decent brands and when you talk to the brands they just say well we'll send you a new one if it's in warranty and they just send you but i i don't want that i, I that's just creating more waste in the world um so i i moved away and now have a hob kettle i just put you know an old-fashioned kettle you put on the hob and because i've got an induction hob it's actually more efficient way of heating water um and I don't have a heating element. So now the kettle lasts 10, 20 years because there is no moving parts in the kettle. It's just it's just a container. And, you know, I feel like as citizens, we can make those decisions and create less waste and we can force companies to do the right thing. When something goes beyond the point of repair, the hope is that it's recyclable to get some of that those materials, those rare earth metals that you've mentioned, use them for something else to reuse that footprint, so to speak. How easily recyclable are smartphones? They're not easily recyclable. They're not designed to be recycled. But also there is, it's, it's, a, it's very tiny amounts of very valuable things in there. So you need to get millions of them together to, to, to make it economically worthwhile to get. So for instance, the indium tin oxide, it's the surface layer uh, that allows touchscreen to operate it's that's the magic material the indium in that well the indium in that is is uneconomic to to take out again and that's partly a market problem which is that indium is a byproduct of mining zinc and zinc is a massive material where so that you get this tiny 
you know, uh, byproduct, but then the tiny byproduct turns out to have this big use, but it's only used in tiny amounts. And now to get, now to make a whole remanufacturing recycling route around Indium, turns out you have to gather all the smartphones together and extract it again. That costs a lot of energy, A, to get the smartphones all in the same place, and B, uh, B then to melt it all down and do the chemistry. So it's, it's actually really, that's why reuse and repair is so much better way environmentally. Recycling smartphones itself to get all the stuff out, that is a major environmental challenge. It's a major chemistry challenge. And it doesn't look like there's an enormous amount of progress at the moment happening in that. Am I right in thinking when I heard you talk about this a few years back, um, you said that because there is more gold in one kilogram of smartphone than there is in one kilogram of gold ore, um, actually the best thing to do is just to take all these mobile phones and whiz them up, blend them essentially, and extract the gold rather than actually taking time, pulling out components and extracting individual elements. Yeah, I mean, that's the way to get the gold. And in fact, gold is extracted from smartphones. And that is the ultimate destination of your smartphone. They are ground up into into dust. Um, and it's the energy involved in getting out the minerals versus their, their, their concentration in that dust. That, that is this, this, this trade-off. I have to say that companies like Apple are, have made commitments, and I imagine some Samsung and others have done the same, which is that they want to be fully circular, so-called, in those minerals by 2035 or some such date. So basically, they want to not be mining any of that stuff anymore. They want to be getting it out of the dust of smartphones to make new smartphones. That's their ambition. Um, they have two reasons for that. And I think one is the is a good wholehearted environmental reason. Uh, and I believe them. But the other is that so security of supply chain is, is now becoming a geopolitical issue. There's all sorts of trade wars going on. And these things are from all around the world. So it makes sense, actually, for, for a piece of technology that everyone relies on to really try and secure your supply chains. And it, of course, if, if you or I send our smartphone back and it goes back to the manufacturer, they, they act, that is a security if they can then make sure they get all the minerals out of that. But, but the real challenge then... It's, it's one thing having all this smartphone dust with all the stuff in it. The other is economically getting it out again. And that usually basically costs a lot of energy, a lot of CO2 emissions at the moment. And that's, yeah, that's, that's prohibitive. So let's just be really clear about this. If I recycle my mobile phone, if I give it to a company that, that say they recycle it, they're not going to take out the battery and reuse that. They're not going to take out the camera and reuse that because that's still working. They're not going to take the screen that's actually not that scratched and reuse it they're just going to whiz it up and blend it into dust. I'm afraid that's true. There is the reuse market. Um, so they will try and sell it on the reuse market. And there is in Africa and a few other places in the world where they, you know, they really value um, this technology more than us in a way because it's, it it's mean, makes more difference to their lives. They will they'll A, keep smartphones longer and B, they, they do trade in these parts. That is shocking. It is shocking. And I think especially when you think about the fact that, you know, mines and the whole mining operation around all these minerals is 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 so environmentally damaging that we ought to be weaning ourselves off it. So the first the first thing to do is to close the loop on the supply chain in terms of things like lithium. And yet it, this seems to be a very difficult or economically hasn't worked. I think that's pretty much it from me. Is there anything else in this area that you think we should talk about? 
If you think of innovation as environmental innovation, we want these things to be durable, repairable, upgradable. Surely upgradable is an innovation. Amazing. Mark, that was as brilliant as I thought it would be. I told Rob, I was like, Mark is the utmost professional. He's going to smash every answer. And of course you did. So (laughs) thank you so much, buddy. Thank you so much to Mark for chatting to me, as always. And if that has piqued your interest and you haven't heard the full episode on whether your smartphone could come with an expiry date, plus the worrying truth of how phone companies could be putting your phone's security at risk, do check out our second episode. Now then, from episode two, we jump to episode four, where I wanted to find out how healthy a plant-based diet genuinely is for you and the planet. I asked if cattle farming could ever be sustainable and I discovered what the true impact of almond milk is compared to dairy when you use the European figures, not the global ones, Uh, and also why I shouldn't actually be calling it almond milk. I also heard some surprising facts about the healthiness, or rather potentially the unhealthiness, of plant-based meat alternatives. And we heard a little of producer Rob's chat with journalist and author Jenny Kleeman, who has written a book called Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat. In the podcast, Jenny told us about how the alternative meat industry started and where it might be going. But there was so much more to that chat that we wanted you to be able to hear. So let's start with one of the many uh, interesting trips that Jenny went on researching these alternative meats. I was uh, driving from Los Angeles to San Francisco and there is a road, the I-5, which goes right up against this farm, the Harris farm, a notorious uh, beef farm, uh, a, a feedlot, uh, where beef is intensively farmed. You can smell the farm 10 minutes before you see the farm. It stinks and you can feel the kind of ammonia in your eyes as you get closer and closer just from the, the waste, the stench of all of these animals packed so close together you just see row after row of cows flank against flank in in the dust in the kind of california heat crammed as close together as possible and they're just slurping grain from troughs because they they're there to get as as bulky as possible as quickly as possible um and it's it's a remarkable thing this feedlot not because it's so big uh, but because it's so visible that most intensive farms where animals are farmed for consumption or for dairy production are well away from um, the eyes of, of, of people who, who, who might want to see or not, might not want to see how their meat um, is made. So I wanted to make a point about how, how unsustainable meat production is on, on the massive scale that we're having to produce it now, but also how carnivores like me, I'm someone who eats meat enjoys eating meat how we we kind of know that it's really gross the way that it's produced generally but we we turn away from it because we just don't want want to know really how do you reason with yourself that that's the case when you see something like that and then you know go back to your hotel or wherever it was you were staying and and have a piece of meat have some beef you know, where where did where does that sit with you but the issue isn't necessarily the eating of the meat, it's the eating as much of it as we do. It's expecting to have it every day or 
several times a day or in the case of the the Harris Ranch, which is connected to the the Harris feedlot, that I, I actually went and stayed in this um, in in the hotel that is um, adjoining this farm. You can have beef with every single meal, including with breakfast. Uh, and if you order a salad, they encourage you to buy little you know bits of steak to put in your salad. You know, uh, it's it's the overconsumption of meat um, that's the problem. But I think most of us. I mean, in my case, I kind of just you know, you try and put it out of your mind or you, you, you try and turn and turn away from it. And I was kind of forcing myself to confront it, really. When it comes to the amount of meat consumption, you know, you made this point in the book as well, which is that actually, as you might think, you know, oh, there's a rise in vegetarianism and veganism and flexitarianism. But that said, that contrasts with a fact that you gave, which is actually we're eating more meat than ever before. Yes. And it's not just us. It's uh, people in India, people in China are eating much more meat than ever before. And there are many more of them than there are of us. So even though it might feel like veganism and vegetarianism is is having a moment in Western countries, at least, uh, we are eating more as a planet of, of, of meat than we ever have done before. And therefore, then, do you think that is is maybe part of the armory that I don't know, maybe meat eaters, I'm just thinking about this as a meat eater myself, meat eaters in the Western world would say, well, what's the point in becoming vegan or giving up meat because they're not everywhere else? It, it's it's almost a, a similar argument that could be made for, you know, pollution in, in different senses as well. Absolutely. I mean, that's why Americans uh, are so in love with their cars and they say there's there's no point uh, giving up on their cars when China is is polluting so much. It's it's an argument that that's often made. What's the point of us making a difference when other people are um, are, are not making a difference? And and in 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 many ways, that's an understandable argument. It's quite a strong argument. Um, yes, I mean it, 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 we but we all have to begin somewhere. I would say, if you can call it the vegan meat industry, I suppose you can. Is is actually far older than than I ever imagined. For years, scientists have been trying to uh, grow animal cells outside of the bodies of animals and get them to proliferate. Um, and in fact, a Nobel, a Nobel Prize winner, Alexis Carell, 100 years ago was doing this, managed to, to grow um, heart cells and they were still beating outside of, of, of the body uh, of, a, of a calf, I think it was, um, bathed in a, in a nutrient bath. There was a NASA program to, uh, to try and, and grow meat without animals so that um, astronauts on missions to Mars might be able to eat meat. And I think there were some um, scientists that managed to successfully grow goldfish meat, but they, they didn't eat it. Uh, they uh, cooked it and uh, apparently it smelt very tasty, but they didn't eat it. Um, the first uh, lab grown meat to be cooked and eaten was actually done as, a, as an art project um, by uh, this amazing uh, Australian artist, Oren Katz, um, who was done as part of this art installation. And it was designed to be as kind of disgusting as possible. It was in France. Uh, he grew some frog meat, cultured it uh, in, a, in, a, in a laboratory and then sat down to eat it in a kind of, you know, very... Uh, elaborate uh, performance i think from from 2008 onwards the dutch government started giving grants um to dutch scientists to try and do this to try and grow uh, meat in labs and in 2011 the first lab grown hamburger was cooked and eaten um, and that was again in a very kind of elaborate 
PR stunt, really, but it was done by this scientist, Mark Post. Uh, and originally they were going to get some celebrity chefs to cook it and they were going to get Leonardo DiCaprio and Natalie Portman, famous vegans, to eat it. Uh, but the end, it was slightly scaled down. But I remember watching it on TV at the time in, in 2011. It was, a, it was in August and it was this incredible thing like, oh, my God, we can, we can grow meat without killing animals. Do you think there is a, a bubble, really, around, you know, it's almost like an echo chamber because, you know, here in London, amazing vegan options. It's easy to be vegan. In Silicon Valley, there's a lot of excitement around, um, you know, the vegan meat industry or however it is you want to call it. Do you think that it is scalable? Do you think that there will be enough interest to, to make an impact on the planet for the better? It will take many years for this to become a, a kind of viable industry. There, there, there are two major factors. The first is that in order to produce this meat on any kind of significant scale, you need really enormous bioreactors. And they don't exist yet, bioreactors the size of which you'd need to make meat uh, in, in a factory uh, on, the, on a scale you need for mass production. And those will have to be purpose-built. They're going to be very expensive. However, you know, there are a lot of people who want to invest in this area at the moment. And it's not to say that the money won't be able to be raised. But at first, um, this is going to be a very expensive product. It's going to be a kind of curiosity. The first lab-grown meat to ever go on sale uh, went on sale uh, in Singapore in December in a private members' club. So, you know, it was incredibly expensive and incredible kind of luxury product, a curiosity, um, not something that you need every day. And this industry is predicated on the idea that at some point in the near future, there will be meat that is price competitive and taste competitive uh, with real meat. So it looks the same. It tastes the same. It's indistinguishable to the nose and the tongue and the eye. Um, and it is the same price or cheaper. And I think it's going to take a very, very long time to get to that point. And then we could all get weaned off the idea of eating dead animals slowly. And then it would become a kind of a, quite an outrageous thing to do, really, to eat a dead animal if you have an option that is identical and the same price or cheaper. And you were to choose the one that came with, with death. It would be a kind of morally impossible thing to justify. So I think... You know, some of it seems like a total fantasy at the moment. And I think anyone who's promising this is going to be, you know, on everybody's plates within five years is, is dreaming a little bit. Uh, but I don't think it's totally impossible that this won't be uh, um, an option in sort of 20 years time, certainly. On that point about the scalability, you know, you talked about the mass kind of processes that would be needed. There are presumably concerns about, you know, the the consequential emissions that they would cause. Yes, at the moment, I mean, the people who are behind this industry are very good at producing stats about how much carbon is caused by industrial agriculture. But the jury is out on how much carbon is, is caused by the production of meat in a laboratory. Uh, I think nobody is in any doubt that beef is terrible for the planet. Um, but chicken isn't so bad at all. And actually, the, the most efficient source of protein uh, in, in the world at the moment is insects. Um, and I guess it would take a lot of uh, work for consumer acceptance of, of insects as, as your meal. But um, it would be quite difficult to produce a substance in a lab uh, that gram for gram is, is uh, less harmful for the planet than eating insects. The most recent thing that I read shows that chicken is still um, more efficient way of getting protein into your body and, and less polluting than uh, meat grown in a lab. But the thing is, these processes, it's early on in the stage. Who's not to say that? I mean, it's, it's clear that 
um, you know, processes will get more efficient. And at the moment, the industry is very motivated uh, by its backers and funders who want this to be a green solution. So at the moment, that's a priority and they will be trying to make things as green as possible. What are your overarching feelings about the future? Is it a scary place? Is it an exciting place? Well, the book looks at, at different inventions that offer a particular view of of human nature. Like, are human beings incapable of change? Do they need to rely on technology to make the changes we need to live the lives that we, we want to live? And I think lab-grown meat is a really good example of something that sounds really interesting, but then when you actually think about it, it's completely ridiculous. That we're going to all of this trouble of culturing cells and growing meat in in laboratories when we could just eat a little less meat. We could eat it once a week. We could make a special occasion and have a Sunday roast and make sure that the animal lived well and we could spend more money on it. And the entire industry and And most of the the entrepreneurs that I look at in the entire book are kind of assuming that human beings are incapable of change and quite selfish and greedy and just want to carry on exactly as as they always have done um, with some clever bits of technology that will will allow them to to be selfish and and, and to not have to adapt. And... um, So you would think that having kind of gone for a little journey in those worlds that I would feel quite downbeat but actually I think human beings are capable of incredible change we have the power as consumers we have the power to say I don't want this or we don't really need this and uh, in a in a capitalist society um, you know that's what goes if people say they don't want something or they don't need it then it withers away Thanks, Jenny and Rob, for that conversation. And if you'd like to know whether a plant-based diet is indeed healthier for you and the planet, take a listen to last week's episode. It's the fourth in this first season, focusing on sustainability. And if you have any questions or thoughts that you'd like to share with me, the best way to do that is on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. I'm at Greg Foote and which are at which UK. All right, let's jump back an episode to episode three now and a subject close to my heart. For the past few years, I've been leasing an electric car. And at the start of this year, I decided to buy one. But was that really the greenest choice? When we started thinking of what I could investigate for the podcast, at the top of my list was EVs, electric vehicles. I was keen to find out how the environmental impact of mining the materials for the batteries stacked up and to learn more about where the electricity that I use to charge my EV comes from. For the episode, I chatted to some brilliant experts, including Witch's own principal researcher and writer within the product testing team, Adrian Porter. For over a decade, Witch has been covering all sorts of developments in the electric car world, and Adrian really knows the facts and figures. I promised in the podcast that I'd play you some of our nerdy chat where we crunch the numbers regarding the cost of charging, and that is coming up. But first, we discuss what he thinks is going to happen over the next decade and what consumers, your big questions about EVs are. Oh, and a surprising revelation from Adrian too. What we're going to see in the next sort of eight, nine years is a seismic shift or possibly the biggest shift in the car industry that I'm aware of going from petrol and diesel uh, and some hybrids to electric cars. And I I don't think people necessarily grasp the 
the huge numbers involved in this. Uh, I believe there were sort of 200,000 uh, electric cars on our roads at the start of this year, according to figures published by Zavmap. But by 2030, by the time that the sale of new car, uh, new petrol and diesel cars will be banned, there's expected to be around 12 million. Uh, and that is just a fantastically uh, huge, not really able to grasp. <laughs> I think it's a 60-fold increase um, off the back of my head. So that's, you know, it's, it's going to be a massive, massive, massive shift. And of course, it raises an awful lot of questions uh, because at the moment, people, you know, electric car owners are the, the early adopters, the, the super keen beans. Um, a lot of them have driveways that they can uh, park their car on. So one of the first questions is, you know, what if I don't have a driveway? Uh, that I can park my car on and charge the car or a garage that I can put it into? What if I don't have any charging stations near me? Can I still own an electric car? What is the government doing about this? Where's the infrastructure at? Um, is it really feasible for me to buy an electric car? And also, don't they cost uh, so much more? And, you know, what help is out there to to help with this? And then you get a few other questions like, you know, can I charge them in the rain or can I drive through flood water in them? Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of sort of lack of knowledge uh, around electric cars at the moment because they are both relatively new to the market, um, relatively sort of not unpopular, but certainly growing in popularity. It's, it's a huge, huge change. So what has WITCH been doing in this area? What uh, what research have you been looking into? Well, recently we've been looking at the electric car infrastructure, um, but to to go back sort of uh, eleven years, you know, we we've been testing electric cars sort of since they first came out, and looking back to sort of 2010, 2011 when we did our first tests of electric cars, um, and recording you know how far they can travel on a single charge, as well as you know how they are to live with, how they are to handle the performance and whatnot, um, and we've been publishing our own range figures for every electric car, as well as you know just assessing them as we do any car that comes through our labs. So I can tell you now, you know, looking back to 2010, 2011, we were recording sort of 50, 60, 70 miles of range uh, from a typical electric car, and that only really started to break the the hundred mile barrier around sort of 2015, 2016. The exception being Tesla, uh, when the uh, the first Tesla Model S came out and it came through our lab, it really set a massively high precedent in terms of how far it could go on a single charge, which many cars are, are still playing catch up with today. So with that huge increase in range that you've seen uh, since 2010, 2011, does that go a long way, so to speak, uh, in in reducing that range anxiety that we hear so much about? I think to a point. So today's cars, um, you know, there are a number of cars uh, that can comfortably do around 200 miles of range. So people are doing around now 9,000 miles a year, and that works out to a bit less than 200 miles a week. So it sounds very sensible of a sudden to say, if I have a 200 mile range car, I can plug in once and, and that'll be fine. Um, but there are some cars that do less than that. Um, cars that have been brought out with um, sort of smaller batteries, uh, the, the Honda E, the Mini are examples of cars that did, you know, less than that in our tests and, you know, weren't anticipating to break the, the 200 mile barrier when they, they first came out. What's our research suggesting we need to do with this nationwide, uh, non-brand specific infrastructure that needs to be in place to see that transition happening in the near future? Well, we're we're having meetings, we're working with people in the industry and we're publishing our research. And we, we, what we want to see is universal access. You know, you shouldn't have to plan ahead 
in order to use a charging station. You know, we want to see things made simpler. We'd also want things like uh, tariffs uh, that operate on time to be taken away and replaced by one that is simply uh, a pence per kilowatt hour. Uh, kilowatt hour, for anyone who doesn't know, that's essentially the new MPG. Um, that, you know, we are going to have to think in terms of kilowatt hour rather than MPG going forward. And it's it's, it's, it's a scary new lexicon uh, to anybody who hasn't driven electric cars before. So, you know, there's a lot to intimidate somebody. I'm thinking a, a recent survey, I think 93% of people had at least one reason as to why they wouldn't buy an electric car. Uh, and I feel this sort of this sort of fear of the unknown and this sort of new language way of thinking is is a big part of that. So we need to make things simpler. Convenience is a big part of it, but cost is another one, right? Electric cars are more expensive than their equivalent almost, although it's hard to make that equivalent, petrol cars. Yes. Uh, yes, they are. And that's that is another big barrier, one of the big barriers to people sort of uh, saying, you know, I'm not going to buy an electric car because they're so expensive. It's no longer the the range anxiety. Um, and I'll, actually, I'll come back to range anxiety later because there's an argument saying there's no such thing as range anxiety anymore. It's charge anxiety. You don't know whether you're going to be able to charge a car. You're not so worried about the range anymore. Uh, it was an interesting uh, something that came up uh, recently in, a, in a, a recent meeting with a number of industry leaders. But to go back to the costs, yes, electric cars are very expensive compared to the, the fossil fuel uh, car equivalent. Now, there is some debate that says, you know, they have lower servicing charges. Uh, which is true. If you, you sign up to servicing plans, they will be a lot less than they will be for a typical combustion car. Um, and you should pay less for your fuel, i.e. your electricity, compared to petrol or diesel. And that is all true. And you will spend less. It depends what car you buy. Uh, I think looking at it was the Mini 1 versus the Mini EV, uh, we worked out with the servicing and the fuel charges uh, from our tests, it would take about 10 or 11 years at the moment uh, in order to bridge the gap between the, the cheap Mini 1 and the uh, the Mini electric car. But we have a big investigation uh, coming up on this, which is going to be published in a, a future issue of which. So, you know, which members, which subscribers do do keep an eye out for that. We've got a home charger set up, um, you know, fortunate to have off street parking um, at my house. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I, I know that I am privileged to have that. And there are an awful lot of people in the UK and around the world that wouldn't be able to do that. And, and you know, you say you've got a charger just down the road that you're able to plug into. But again, not everyone's going to have access to that either. No, absolutely. And like, you know, I've got to share that with everyone else, you know, around me. And there are sort of more and more electric cars popping up. Um, but again, it's, it's the cost. So that charger will charge either 30 pence or 35 pence per kilowatt hour, uh, depending on uh, whether I use their dedicated app or if I entered sort of a different way or paid by just my if I tap and paid using a debit or credit card. Again, I get charged that higher amount uh, rather than using their dedicated app. But if I were to charge at home and I was to take use uh, domestic rates you know it's phenomenally cheaper we were using sort of 16.83 pence uh, the last time we did this uh, as the the typical kilowatt hour price that people pay at home that's based on i think it's the, the sort of the standard tariff from five out of the six sort of big energy uh, companies um, depending on the car let's say you were driving a Sorry, just very, <laughs> I'm typing in figures as we go. Live maths happening. So in our test, the Volkswagen ID3 used uh, 19.3 uh, kilowatt hours uh, per 100 kilometers. Now, 
if you were to run that for 9,000 miles uh, and you were paying um, 16.83 pence at home, which is getting roughly uh, the average uh, that people have been paying, uh, it'll charge you £470 a year to keep your car topped up. And that's incredible. You know, that's that's a very, very low cost compared to a, a mid-sized equivalent sort of petrol or diesel car. With today's fuel rates to do the same mileage, you're looking at about £975 for a, a diesel a medium size uh, hatchback car or 1,275 if you're running a petrol. So it's definitely, that's less than half, definitely less than half. Much less than half, yes. But the problem is, you know, that's charging at home. Now, if I were to plug it in at my, my 35 kilowatt hour... Um, charger down the street. Charger down the mid. Yes, exactly, yes. Um, that immediately rises to £978. So that's actually... Ooh, close. Yes. Well, actually, that's £3 more expensive than diesel, um, than the mm. equivalent diesel car. And I know that's not much. I mean, we've seen fuel rise, uh, fuel prices go up and up and up and up um, over the last year. So despite the rising uh, fuel costs at this point, if I were to exclusively use this rapid charger, and it is, you know, the, the most convenient way to do it, I can fill up most cars and four to 50 minutes from not to 80% or 10 to 80%, um, it's it's going to cost me more than the equivalent diesel. It won't cost me more than the equivalent petrol, but that in itself is bonkers. Like, no one's really talking about the fact that, you know, there are, there are these magic numbers, essentially, that if you pay over a certain uh, pence per kilowatt, uh, which is, in this case, going to be basically 35, then you're paying more for your electric car than you are for the equivalent diesel. There's many other complications, and it just it doesn't feel like that should be the case. You know, electricity is is everywhere. You know, we we should be able to make something that's you know smart enough and accessible enough uh, and cheap enough uh, for people to really reap the benefits, and not just those who who have a driveway. So where does this leave us consumers? Where does it leave people interested to dip their toe in the electric vehicle pond because they want to be doing their bit for the planet? But they've got all of these challenges. They've got all these factors. You know, you've just done a load of maths for us to try to work this out. Like, what's the average person supposed to do? If you dip your toe in, uh, you, you may just dive on head in. Uh, because, you know, we, we do things for the things that we love. And yes, you might have been attracted to the electric car market through sort of uh, by wanting to be a bit greener, uh, wanting to be a bit more sort of uh, ethical. Um, but... You know, you get into an electric car and you drive, and I'm, I'm sure you've probably felt the same thing. Um, there's no noise. And suddenly it's, it's really weird that you're driving a car that has no engine noise, but there's also no engine shudder. Um, there's no vibrations um, other than anything sort of coming through from the road surface. There's also that pickup, that sweet pickup. But yes, you know, you get that instant torque and it's it's nippy, but also the, the way it delivers the power is smooth and linear. But how do we get the majority of people to want to do that not just you know i think we've moved beyond the early adopters phase now we're moving more mainstream but it's still going to take a significant uh, jump in ease um you know ability to just just do this to plug in to afford it how do we do that 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 step change well the government is uh, looking into how we can make sort of a an easier charging infrastructure and we're you know we're in meetings with the government and also industry so we are trying to help create that better environment and work with people to do it because yes there are issues with the charging infrastructure at the moment and the you know it's going to be a very very difficult sell based on sort of the logic behind everything right now for sort of mass adoption particularly if 
you know, uh, you don't have a particularly high income or if you're in a, a flat or a place, you, you know, you can't charge your car or like I, I, um, I don't have a driveway myself. So for me, I'm, I'm, I'm in an iron about my next car. Um, but it is still possible to live with. You know, there is still a charging infrastructure there and you can use it. You just have to be a bit more savvy and a bit more, uh, you have to do a bit more research into it. And that in itself will put some people off. Uh, and I think until the charging infrastructure is improved and made just that a bit easier, a bit simpler, those people will always be put off. You say you're you say you're uh, deciding which car to have because of driveway or, or road access. That will be an electric car, will it? You're just deciding which model. Possibly, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, Possibly an electric car. So you're still considering a, considering an ICE car, even with all of this experience and research that you've done and the benefits you say of of evs yes to be honest because i'm i'm looking at the cost of the charges around me um and the accessibility and how sort of often they are in use and you know i want to be able to go out and buy an electric car but um my wife who would be the the primary user of the the car can't, can't charge the car at home or at work so it becomes just that little bit more difficult in a day-to-day um and our charger you know it's it's down the road, but it's, we're talking seven or eight minutes down the road. So, you know, would you plug in for seven, eight minutes, then have 40 minutes sitting in the car? Or would you come back and go forward? You know, it's hopefully there's going to be a better charging infrastructure uh, where I live in the near future. Um, and I don't mean just necessarily at home, but like, you know, I, I want to see more charging infrastructure around the supermarkets, for instance, that I go to. Uh, because in the times where I have um, tested an electric car, um, as part of my job, then I've only got one supermarket near me that I have to go town over to to go to that actually has a rapid charge infrastructure or a rapid charging point. And that's fantastic because I can plug in while I'm shopping. So at that point, it's more convenient than a petrol diesel car because I'm not making a side journey. Uh, but I'm, I'm hoping there will be there'll be more charging infrastructure. But my my clapped out uh, old Ford is very much on its last legs. So I might be forced to make a decision relatively soon. But if I can go electric, I, I certainly will. Thanks so much to Adrian. I love how passionate he is about EVs, um, even if he's not sure whether his next car purchase is going to be one. That is it for the mid-season bonus episode then. Huge thanks to those of you who have left a review and rated the podcast over on Apple Podcasts. It does genuinely help others decide whether they're going to click and listen and help them find us. And you got us again to number one in the documentary podcast charts this week, which we are so happy with. Thank you. Um, if you are enjoying this first season and you haven't yet rated and reviewed it please do we'd hugely appreciate it four more episodes are on the way in this sustainability season so follow us to catch them episode five will be with you next friday i'm going to be chatting all things hydrogen heat pumps solar i'm going to be finding out what are the best options for you if you decide to ditch fossil fuel heating at home and turn to an apparently more sustainable alternative And if you've got something that you'd like us to investigate in this season or for the future, do get in touch. Once again, I'm at Greg Foote and which is at Witch UK on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. 
Here at Which, we're making sustainability key to what we do, from how we assess the products and services we review to the way we run our whole organisation. And that's why this first season of Which Investigates is dedicated to helping you make the sustainable choices you've told us are so important. We've got new reviews and advice every day on which.co.uk that will give you the power to make the best decisions for you and the planet. And if you want to make the most of your money with everyday personal finance tips, then why not have a listen to our sister show, The Witch Money Podcast. Today's episode was presented by me, Greg Foote, written and produced by me and Rob Lilly, and our executive producer is Angus Farker. And I'll see you next time.